This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Hello and welcome to Plato's Cave, a Triple R film criticism show and podcast. Uh, you are listening to Thomas Cordwell, Alexandra Helen, Nicholas, Cerise Howard and Emma Westwood, the entire 2017 Plato's Cave team are back all at Woo-hoo! once. We're all in the cave together. Huzzah! This is exciting. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> Settle down, Cerise. <laughs> uh, before I should go any further, a huge, huge, huge thank you to Lisa Kovacevic for filling in over the past four weeks. Hey, Lisa, got it right. Look, that move, was beautiful. Move on, move. I listened back to you guys last week and you butchered a bunch of foreign names, so it's not just me. Oh, Ow. hang on. Yeah. Excuse me. You're all racist. Let's just leave it at that. Please move on. But uh, <laughs> I a, am huge, mighty a huge thank you to Lisa who uh, did a really sensational job of panelling and anchoring the, the show, especially the last two weeks. Um, always exciting doing this with, with, with new people and Lisa fitted in seamlessly and I thought just brought a really high standard quality to the show made us all look bad and she did fabulous <laughs> um speaking for myself <laughs> look speaking about final things this is the final proper plato's k for the year this is the the final show with with the four of us so we're going to be looking at our favorite films released in melbourne in 2017 look the only criteria is they had to be films with either a theatrical home entertainment or streaming service release so we, we haven't included things that had advanced screenings at festivals or media screenings that kind of thing just films that got their full proper release in melbourne this year, therefore films that you all got a chance to see. Um, we chose 10 films each. We got to a combined total of 28 films. There were 10 double-ups and only one triple-up. <gasps> so lots of different films. You'll find out it, it's, it's, it's one that I almost picked, but you three did and I, <gasps> I almost picked it, but I didn't, so it's just the three Thomas, of you. I reckon I know what it is. Well, stop it. It's. Oh. <laughs> what is I'm going to put money on it. <laughs> I, 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 don't know, I don't know about you guys, but I had a really hard time whittling down my favourites to 10 this year. I thought this was a particularly strong year, and I began with a short list of 20 films. It's the films. Greasy Strangler, isn't it? It is the Greasy Strangler. <laughs> <laughs> yes! <laughs> we actually. Because we now have to talk about 28 films, we better really get into it. So let's start off with uh, a bunch of films I've kind of loosely assembled, which I think are films that in various ways push the boundaries of genre cinema. I don't think we any of us picked any overt genre films. Oh, hang on, I might retract that, actually. There's a, t- a few. But these are all films we're going to discuss now that I think push the definition of what genre cinema can be. And Emma, I thought I'd start off with you with your choice, Good Time. Good Time. Because it's a great film. Good Time. Um, I really thought Good Time was just one of the more exciting films that I saw this year, right from the start. Very rollicks, rollicks along at a high speed like this show is going to rollick along at. And um, I particularly enjoyed the performances of Arpat and uh, the Safties on screen and behind the screen. I love the all the direction. I, it felt very new. It felt very fresh while also referencing that kind of early Scorsese cinema and that particularly great electronic score which really drove it forward and uh, a nice mix of um, comedy in there as well, comedy with the action and the pathos. It was a hell of a film, Mm. really breathtaking. Um, 
Alex, I wasn't surprised at all to see this film on your list. You had Colossal oh, selected. Oh, that was so obvious. <laughs> that was when I nearly did. I nearly did you, it. I just Whoa. missed out for me too. I don't even know if it's ethical for me to have put Colossal on. Like, Because you're BFFs I, with the filmmaker, I know. And you I, thanked him I the like credits. Him. I like him very much. He's a very, very nice man. But we... we got to know each other because of his film. So I've been an admirer of his movies for many, many years. This is Nacho Vigolondo. Um, going right back to 2003, I think, the film that he uh, was nominated for an Oscar film for, uh, a short film called 7.35 de la Mañana, he's always had a hate on for male feminists. And I love that. Not not the cool guys that get that gender and power are a thing. Not lowercase male feminists, but capital M, capital F. Um, what do we call it with the Weinstein era? Devils in pussy hats. These these hypocritical <laughs> asshole guys that pretend to be feminists, but really they're doing. They're not. They're no friend of the ladies. And Nacho's films. Nacho has a very long history of being bothered by these kinds of men. But Colossal, I think, with Anne Hathaway is the first time that he'd focused his attention on a female protagonist to tell that kind of story rather than these quote-unquote problematic men. It's a gorgeous science fiction film. Um, he's very good at playing with genre. He's not out to subvert it, but I think that um, Colossal for me is just a... It, it's what genre does. It's a powerful genre film with a really strong message and Nacho's a nice man. And once you see his short film, you won't ever forget that song, De La Mañana. <laughs> which, is not, which is Nacho. That's actually him singing. Him singing it, yes. Cerise, one of the films you picked, um, actually I'm not too sure whether this really deserves to be called a genre film, but it's certainly harking back to a very specific style of filmmaking and that's The Love Witch, which made it onto oh, your yeah, top yeah, ten. Yeah. Well, it certainly does harken back uh, very faithfully and yet um, impishly uh, to sexploitation films of yesteryears, of um, the 60s, 70s uh, period. Uh, Annabella has extremely lovingly uh, nailed the aesthetic of those whilst flipping the, the politics of them and the gaze somewhat and had a hell of a lot of fun with an extremely captivating protagonist who... Do you know the actress's name? Samantha Any, the, somebody. I've yeah, gone blank. she's so she was perfect. Yeah. Uh, takes such relish in um, wreaking a, a certain sort of havoc that is uh, at one with the genre conventions but also totally um, topsy-turvy to them. That film's so much fun and it's so, so beautiful. Well, speaking of beautiful, we come to my first selection of the night, which is Blade Runner 2049. And I sort of deliberated about whether I include this because it feels so blatantly fanboyish, but it's a film that's really stayed with me. And it was a bit of a... <laughs> sort of a, For someone who adores the original so much, it was a kind of quasi-religious experience seeing this new film on IMAX in all its glory. This is just one of the most stylishly beautifully designed, provocative films. I, I've, I, mean, I, think, I don't think it's up there with the, the original, but boy, it comes damn close. I adore science fiction as a genre and I adore it when it's taken seriously. I love that mix of hard science and philosophy, which we saw in Denis Villeneuve's previous film, Arrival. Um, this both worked as a companion piece to the original and also a bold new work. And it was kind of, weirdly enough, the film that kind of triggered my interest in broader film criticism again as well, because so much criticism on this film was terrible. <laughs> it, it has been the subject of some very 
very shallow, superficial reading. So I actually got quite excited to discover pieces going in, in, in deep again. And it sort of triggered my interest in what is happening with film criticism at the moment. Um, uh, unlike this show and your co-panellists here. Uh, <laughs> well, uh, basically, I, <laughs> I read and listen to everything the rest of you do, but I sort of don't engage broadly because I don't like to be polluted, I suppose, before I bring my own thoughts to, to, to the room. But... um. But the conversation around this piece was sort of a bit of a wake-up call for me and it made me feel proud of this show and the kind of level of discussion we bring to film. So that oh. was nice, if nothing else. But, um, <laughs> but I, I think Good Blade Runner... Good save, mate. Yeah. <laughs> this one. Sweet. Blade Runner 2049, I, I think, is a, is a special film that's going to grow in, in, in stature throughout the years. Emma, back to you. Again, mm. I don't know whether this really fits in perfectly as a genre film, but it does play with some interesting tropes, and that is Lady Macbeth. Oh, I know that's a controversial one in here, but... Um, Only because I behave so badly when we discuss it. So, so I will shut up now and let you, <laughs> let you discuss Lady Macbeth. Uh, I really enjoyed this. It's, it seems like eternity since I saw it, but um, I, I enjoyed the way that this film actually, I felt, um, uh, depicted boredom without being boring. Uh, you might think something else about that, Thomas, but it started off, uh, I think it really sowed the seeds well of um, her situation and I enjoyed that way that her character, even though ultimately was a, quite an evil character, um, that she had a level of uh, of strength and not victimisation right from the start that seemed to... It seemed very original, actually, um, uh, how that came out in the film. And I also like the way that in this film all the characters were very um, multidimensional. There were no sort of um, uh, clear-cut good or bad and there was a lot of moral amb ambiguity that went on and that led to a particularly devastating scene, which I thought they handled very well. Nicely said. Yes. Alex, another one of yours which very much did play with the conventions of a genre is The Untamed. Yeah, I, <laughs> it was going to happen just so I could say sort of alien sex. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's why I, I, feel like, I feel like I have such a long relationship with this film. I wrote an essay on it for uh, Arrow Video in the UK earlier in the year. Um, it played at uh, both Queensland Film Festival and MIF this year and then, of course, it's recently played at ACME um, and I was on a panel for that as well and I feel like I've been on this wonderful journey. This is just my cup of tea. It's, it's this intensely intelligent, really gruelling Mexican social realism film but with a kind of alien Lovecraftian sex beast from outer space that wants to have sex with everybody, boys and girls. It's like, what's not to love? <laughs> <laughs> but then it gets sick of them. Oh, spoiler. <laughs> Spoilers. Yeah, yeah. We're, you're listening to Plato's Cave here on 3 Triple R. We're talking about our favourite films of 2007. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R in Melbourne, Australia. You're listening to Plato's Cave. You're looking at our favourite films of 2017, not 2007, which I may have said a moment ago. Uh, the next sort of pushing the boundaries of genre film we have on our list is Raw, which Cerise and Emma, you both nominated. Well, we were both on a panel for this earlier in the year, weren't we, we too? Were. We mm. banged on a bit about we this, did didn't we? Uh, this is as lovely a, a Belgian uh, veterinarian cannibal film <laughs> with a feminist uh, <laughs> slant to it as one could hope to encounter. Uh, 
<laughs> I, I enjoyed this tremendously. It was, there was a, a lot of hype before it hit the screens here, and um, as is the case with hype, it was excessive. Lots of nonsense about people fainting in the aisles or vomiting profusely over the heads of the people in front of them and all sorts of nonsense. Really, it was actually a very intelligent horror film. Sure, there was quite a bit of viscera, but uh, there was a bit of dark humour and some really intelligent stuff about uh, rape culture on campus and the evil that is heteronormativity discussed. <laughs> <laughs> That's about it. Yeah. That's pretty much it. And uh, and I think this is a film that was a really uh, quite a delight in, uh, in spite of its hype. Usually I guess the hype is what is meant to get you in, but the hype was what was turning me off. It just seems so simplistic, this idea, oh, it's going to make you sick. And it's as Cerise has just explained, it wasn't that movie so it was incredibly surprising and it despite that it also holds up on it or stands on its own two feet very well uh the next film is one of mine i think this has mm. been a strong year for the superhero film i've been felt so jaded about superhero films but this year we've got wonder woman the new spider-man film um something else that was quite good and <laughs> and then the one i picked can is, i guess is, yeah i'm sure you can get it right logan ah. this was one of the biggest surprises this year i was not expecting to be so moved <laughs> and to have such a good time as i did with logan a sort of uh, superhero films have become very colourful and fun and hit all those four quadrants. This was a dark, gritty, violent, visceral action film with some really thoughtful things to say about the you know, about dying and death and, and, and legacy. Uh, had very overt references to the Western, uh, especially High Noon, but this was, for me, the unforgiven of superhero films. I was not expecting to adore this film so much, but, um, yeah, had a major impact on me. And... My biggest problem with the previous X-Men films has been not enough of Wolverine stabbing people in the head with his claws, <laughs> and in this film, we got a lot of that. Got it. <laughs> Yay! Over to Cerise and Alex now for the next film, which is... I'm so glad I heard the show that you guys discussed this film on because it made me rush out to see it, and that was The Limehouse Golem. I thought I might have been alone Ooh, on picking that. I'm no, so glad that you picked it, Cerise. It. it really stuck with me, this film. Yeah, it me too. It was totally unexpected. It just came from out of nowhere, this beautiful sort of Victorian, Jack the Ripper-esque, gothic, um, queer, wonderful, just just masterpiece really Absinthia. in its own way. Like just, <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, All that really green. drenched in uh, squalor and uh, carny life of, um, of a bygone era. That's sort of a London that I like to romanticise because it frankly doesn't exist anymore. If you were to wander around the streets of Camden Town these days, this is, these are not the people you meet anymore <laughs> and more's the pity. Uh, it's a fabulous serial killer film with any number of twists and crosses and, and any any number... Oh, I don't know how you quantify queerness exactly, but the film just has it in its fabric somehow. You know what? Too. Maybe queerness is... Maybe just bent. Yeah. It's bent. Yeah. It's... I, I just... Yeah, it really surprised me. I'm very, very fond of the director of this movie, a guy called, uh, did I write his name down? Juan Carlos Medina, who did a film mm. in 2012 called Insensibles, which was brilliant. And when I saw, that was the only reason why I watched Limehouse Gollum was because I remembered his work. I hadn't read the Peter Ackroyd book that it was based on. Alex and a Spanish filmmaker, uh, no. that's all I can say. And Bill Nye, <laughs> hats off to Bill for bringing it. It was like the old Bill Nye was back. Yeah, yeah. Uh, substituting for Alan Rickman, who's no longer with us as well we know. Alas. The next film on the list is actually also an English language film by a Spanish director, and that's one that you and I chose, Emma, mm. which is A Monster Calls. Yes, this is a, I thought this was an incredible film um, in so many ways. Just being a film that um, 
can be, well, it's not really a children's film, but it is a children's film, and but it communicates children, uh, the complexity of emotion of children so clearly and in such an adult way. I think this is just a beautiful, beautiful script and incredibly moving and also um, beautiful looking considering it's got a big CGI monster, which I'm not usually a fan of, but this totally won me over in every way. Yeah, this is certainly a film I struggle to talk about the most because I just mm. choke up. Um, I've often felt that films aimed at teenagers and children are often far more sophisticated in the ways they deal with certain themes and, and, and grief and the anger and the, the guilt that comes with grief, those really complex emotions, very much are explored in this film in a way that's that's not predictable, that's, that's surprising and hits a really core feeling. I mean, I, I've seen this film twice now and I've read the book and every experience with this story has, has left me shattered and very, very, very moved to the point of tears, but in that very cathartic, beautiful way. I mm. thought this was um, a, a glorious work. Very and that, Liam Neeson gave good tree, didn't he? <laughs> he? He did good tree. I'm glad you say. I'm glad you didn't say he did good wood, but he did good tree in this, yeah. <laughs> I didn't even he think gave of good that, wood. but anyway. No, this, this is the best thing Liam Neeson has done in a really, really long time. Yeah. Thank God he's doing something other than pulpy action films. Um, I mean, I like pulpy action films, but the ones he does aren't good. <laughs> We're meant to be focusing on the positive. Uh, we're going right. to continue discussing our favourite films of 2017 in just a moment. You're listening to Plato's Cave here on 3RRR. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. We are talking about our favourite films of 2017. Call Me By Your Name happens to be one of the ones I selected. We haven't been able to cover it on the show yet because it doesn't come out until Boxing Day, but I, I caught it at MIFF and um, hung out briefly with director Luca Guadagnino, and it's a film that uh, had an enormous impact on me. I, I haven't loved Guadagnino's previous films. He's quite a cult director who, who is adored. His other films haven't connected with me, but this one, it, it's about a 17-year-old boy in the early 80s living with living in, in, in Tuscany who falls in love with a, a, a student in his early, uh, mid-20s who is a... a, a come to stay with the family so be mentored by his dad and the film is just the growing desire and passion and love and frustration and, and doubt between um, this boy and, and this slightly older man played by Army Hammer doing what I think it's going to be a career defining performance this film just captures that passion and longing and lust and, and beauty of, of sort of young first love in a beautiful way there is a scene between this boy and his father towards the end of the film that I'm getting choked up talking about me. This is one of the most perfect fathers I've ever seen in, in cinema. It's an amazing scene. And, and the very last shot of this film is the, the shot that made me love it. It's one of those films where I was really liking it. And in the last five minutes, it slipped it into that kind of realm where it's, I'm talking about it tonight. It's one of my favourite films of the year. So that's Call Me By Your Name. Um, this, this section I'm loosely referring to as the auteurs section. So sort of known <laughs> filmmakers with a track record that are very much you know, in our, in our minds as important filmmakers. Um, and so we've all selected films belonging to some of the heavyweights of world cinema. And the next one uh, we're going to do, Emma, is one of your selections, and that's Terence Davies' A Quiet Passion. Oh, yes, yes. This was one little one that crept up on me that... Um I know that uh, it's not everyone's cup of tea, um, but I found this to be 
at once, uh, at turns, I guess I should say, um, hilarious and absolutely devastating. It was a film that seemed to go, manage to turn its, uh, do this perfect gradual slide from hilarity and um, really interesting language, scripting of language into um, this degradation of the character physically and mentally that was absolutely harrowing. Um, and it also, it was quite a, a, a long film, but I think it was so beautifully paced and there was this amazing scene in the centre that was almost like the middle eight of a, of a song in some ways, which I thought was one of the more hypnotic, incredible scenes I've seen in cinema this year. So well done, Terence Davies, I say. <laughs> Um, Cerise, you weren't on the show when we actually reviewed this film, but one of your selections uh, is It's Only the End of the World, Xavier Dolan's oh, film. Oh, yeah, I missed that. I, I really loved that. I saw it at the French Film Festival, and um, I, I generally like his work. I didn't like one or two of the earliest ones, but this is just a, a really tight chamber piece. It's really claustrophobic. There are secrets that are, um, are teased out uh, that various characters are holding tight to them at this sort of family get-together an estranged son, long estranged from his family, returning to the family home and um, things are just rather tense. And I, I think uh, Dolan uh, has done tremendously well with a, a real all-star cast, Marion Cotillard, Vincent Cassel and, uh, <laughs> and some others. He's and <laughs> Yeah, I, I, he is the Wunderkind. We, we, we need to be sparing with terms like that because you want to just throw them around willy-nilly when some new hotshot emerges on the scene. But he's making film after film now reliably accomplished and uh, moving. I found this film very moving. Super impressed. A film that came... So it would have been my 11th film, if you could do 11, is one that Alex Nemo has chosen, Olivier Assayas' Personal Shopper. Mm. It's the first Assayas film I've not not hated and I'm still gobsmacked that I had such a connection with this film. And Thomas really, I mean, you know, we're all at home to Kristen Stewart, you know, the case to you, you know, that kind, that's enough to get me in, case mm-hmm. you in a pretty frock. I'm not a complicated person. Um, <laughs> but this film, and I, I love movies that do this, that sort of play around ideas of genre without being a genre film. And Thomas, I'm lucky with... Um, with the Guaranino film in that it was, I really, really enjoyed this film, but the last five minutes just, it was, it, my experience just elevated. Yeah, I love it, it when just, that just happens. such a, a kind of sublime state. And I've just not shaken this film since I've seen it. I've, I've deliberately not rewatched it. I don't, I don't want to go back. I know that's a strange thing to say about a film that you've really loved, um, but I'm still so weirded out about the fact that, that I'm even saying something remotely positive about a Sayers. <laughs> Yeah, I know what you mean, Alex. And I think that this film really handled um, the textual uh, SMS culture very well. I find that films struggled with that quite a bit, not knowing really how to present it in terms of um, uh, a new media, whether they, you know, you put it on the screen or whatever. But this had a really great sense of pace in a text message exchange as well and added to the drama in, in a way that I haven't even I haven't seen before in a film. So, yeah, Case Stu and our Pat, both in the top tens for this year. Makes me very happy. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a difficult relationship with Pablo Lorin. That's another director who a lot of his films leave me f- cold, where a lot of others I've, I've adored. I, I adored No. Um, and I was really blown away this year by, by Jackie, he, his biopic of uh, Jacqueline Kennedy, um, played by Natalie Portman. Um, 
just the way this film captured the idea of of memory that's it's all told in flashback through an interview with her and uh, the way it just showed us all these kind of kind of wistful fragments and the way engaged with how we construct the mythology of 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 the dead and and what it means to sort of hold office as the president of the the united states i thought that this was just a really poetic beautiful film that got under my skin in a way that I, I've never, I'm still not yet to be able to quite articulate what it is I love about it, as you can maybe tell, but it's a film <laughs> that left a really, really major I- impression on me. Uh, Emma, another one for you is Killing of a Sacred Deer. Killing of a Sacred Deer. Wow, it's fantastic. I loved it. Uh, we just talked about this recently, so in the last couple of weeks, so hopefully everyone tuned in and heard that. But, um, uh, yeah, I think this is uh, an excellent Lanthimos film. Um as I said, I, I'm a massive fan of Dogtooth. I thought he started off really well, then kind of got a bit derivative with Alps, came back with a vengeance with the lobster. And I think this is just um, maintaining that level. And it, it makes me really excited to see what he can do as a director. Um, and I think that you mentioned as well, Thomas, that he's really... Um, uh, Colin Farrell seems to have really hit his drive with Lanthimos, where you get that sort of director relationship going that's just so strong and the chemistry's there and um yeah i think it's there with this too yeah cerise you and i both had the romanian film graduation in our top tens which was a surprise to me yeah <laughs> was it yeah that i picked it, that you picked uh, it. Yeah. i knew it would, be, it would be up there for you but um yeah this, this yeah was uh, a strong strong film <laughs> love a bit of romanian miserabilism <laughs> and uh this um Oh gosh, this is a, a fabulous film, a fabulous portrait of uh, post-communist life and um, uh, exemplary uh, meditation on how power can switch from one regime to notionally a, a better one, a worthier one, a more democratic one, and yet the same uh, elites stay in power, the same corruption exists, and uh, people who've suffered under one a uh, horrible form of government wind up suffering still having to battle ludicrous bureaucracy under another and so yeah everyday people uh, exasperating circumstances and this film just throws you right in the thick of um, one particular father's concerns for his daughter's well-being and hopes that she'll have a better life elsewhere. But can she get out? Can anyone ever get out? I also love morally complex films where all the characters are essentially good people, that they all maybe slide a little bit in terms of ethical behaviour, but all the characters in this film are people who I think in their own way are trying to do the right thing. Yeah. And yet there is still enormous drama going on. This was yeah. beautifully crafted. Uh, not unlike a film, Emma, that you selected, which is The Salesman. The Salesman, yes. Am I the only one that selected that? I thought that one oh, would be I more not? popular. No. Hmm. Um, yeah, very similar film, really, to Graduation. I laboured over whether to put Graduation in there as well. When I say similar film, completely different country, completely different um, moral dilemma, but still um, there are some uh, stylistic and thematic correlations between the two. And with this one, Asghar Faradi, have I said his name right? Mm, yes, I haven't written it down. Um, uh, he kind of follows up that similar theme that he seems to work with um, in a separation, some people may know. A similar type of moral conundrum, especially between um, couples, although in this one it is over um, how this couple deals with the sexual assault of the, the wife. Um, and I found this to be incredibly tense, um, dramatic, amazing, beautiful acting and um, eye-opening as well. I think it's a really eye-opening look at Iranian 
around Ian society? Mm-hmm. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Look, in the final film that we I've sort of loosely called auteurs is a film I've picked is uh, Certain Women, which possibly is my favourite mm. film this year. Kind of, I've seen Kelly Reichardt's films before, but for some reason this year something clicked into gear. I rewatched a bunch of them, and I just fell in love with her vision and her cinema. And Case Stew again, Case Stew, Kirsten Stewart, uh, Michelle Williams, and Laura Dern, and newcomer Lily Gladstone, just hitting it out of the park. And this beautiful minimalist story of sort of. Yeah, sort of working class American life, but there is, I can't, again, I can't, I love films where I can't quite articulate what it is about them, but this put me into a amazingly tranquil, happy place, even though these are films with, with, with drama and, and sadness, but Reichardt has this amazing ability to find the beauty in the absolute everyday in a way that's quite subtle and um, and just highly poetic. Yeah, so that that was... A lovely discovery for me to have (laughs) this year. You're listening to Plato's Cave here on 3 Triple R. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R FM in Melbourne, Australia. You're listening to Plato's Cave here on 3 Triple R. We're going to look now um, at. Uh, we we're talking about our favourite films of 2017. Four documentaries were selected this year, starting with casting Jean Benet, which is one of yours, Alex. Yeah, I had a really good year for documentaries. Last year, I don't think I picked any for my top ten, and this year I've picked three. And I would have, if I followed the rules of the game properly, I also would have picked OJ Made in America, which we didn't cover on the show but did screen in America. Uh, did screen mm, at Acme, yeah, sorry. Yep. Um, Eight-hour OJ Simpson documentary I thought was would have been my idea of hell, but it was amazing. But what I did pick was casting Jean Benet um, by Kitty Green, the Australian filmmaker Kitty Green. She won my heart in 2013 with her documentary Ukraine is Not a Brothel, which is about the Ukrainian feminist activist group Femin. Um, she made a short eight-minute film in 2015 called The Face of Ukraine casting Oksana Bell, where um, she auditions a bunch of young girls to play, you know, to star in a reenactment about this famous Ukrainian gymnast. And she uses that, I guess, as a kind of um, methodological model for what she does in, in casting Jean Benet, which just absolutely blew me away. Um, it's it's obviously about the... Um, uh, the it's, it's still an unsolved case, the murder of the very young child beauty queen from Boulder, Colorado, Jean Benet Ramsey, uh, in Christmas 1996. But what Kitty Green does is um, instead of looking at the case itself, she really focuses on the way that we incorporate these sort of meta news stories into our own lives and into our own stories and we use them almost as a kind of linguistic palette to talk about our own experience. Um, Some critics found this film really exploitative and to me that just on a critical level absolutely missed the point that what made this film so important. Uh, On a very different note was the film... Keddy, which Cerise, oh. bless you, you picked. Oh, I was alone. Surely not. I, I laboured. I laboured over that one. Yeah. I, I did love this film mm. as well. The yeah. cats were up against a dead toddler. I had no choice. Look, <laughs> <laughs> oh. this is such a beautiful film, and it's not just for uh, Aurelia Files, as I determined. Um, sometime recently, cat lovers are actually known as. Um, but also for folks who might wish to become besotted with a city, uh, Istanbul. It is. Uh, actually of the city symphony genre this film whilst also being a a very loving tribute to our feline friends and to the bonds forged between ordinary folk from actually quite a variety of walks of life uh with with the cats that just roam the streets seemingly very freely and not just the streets but along the ports and just generally seem to have the run of the place 
and there's just so much warmth in this film and um, it's, it's glorious, it's funny, but actually there's yeah, there are some tinges of sadness there. There's certainly suggestion of, uh, there's a critique of gentrification and, and a little bit of concern that Istanbul might not always be what it is in this film. Uh, this year, I think if there was one of the dominant themes was was focus on Black Lives Matter and African-American filmmaking and the African-American experience. Uh, and one of those films that definitely stood out was I Am Not Your Negro, which is one you've selected, Alex. I did. I um, uh, When we covered this on the show, James Baldwin, discovering James Baldwin when I was in high school was a really, really major moment for me and my love of art just in general, the idea that somebody could put things together in such a way to make something so beautiful um, really carved a place in my life for James Baldwin and this documentary um, just, it felt in a long and it felt in a way that it was a long time coming for those of you who haven't seen it, it um, it's based on his unfinished manuscript, Remember This House um, that covers his relationship with civil rights leaders, Medgar Evers, Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. Um, I think, I mean, there's so much that we can say about this film that we've already said on a previous show when we're running really low on time. Aside from the remarkable figure that James Baldwin is and the, the power with which he addresses the issues at stake and the, the, the contemporary potency of the issues that this film raises, I forgot how good Samuel L. Jackson, who was the narrator of this film, could mm. be. I think it's his best role in a, a decade. Yep. I mean, it's extraordinary to hear him act. <laughs> and not be garbage. <laughs> well, it's a bit like Liam Neeson. Samuel L. Jackson yeah. and Liam Neeson this year both did standout performances as voiceovers, doing voice work. Uh, and the final documentary that's been selected, well, is it really a documentary or is it about documentary filmmaking? It's one Alex and Cerise both nominated and that's Camera Person. I call it a patchwork, an autobiographical patchwork. It's a quilt, isn't it, of it's a, a film? <laughs> it's a crocheted nano rug. Yeah. It's, uh, well, it's a film about making films, but... Really, it's, it's a film about footage, not so much actually making films, but accumulating footage and, and contemplation upon why you might accumulate footage. What is the stuff of good footage and what are the ethics of accumulating footage? And um, I, mean, I don't actually know much of this filmmaker's work, so all of this footage was new to me. And some of it's clearly very autobiographical, very personal. I think it was, it was her mother that she was... Yeah, her mother yeah. has Alzheimer's yeah. and she uses footage. This is uh, Kirsten Johnson, who's mm. a uh, documentary cinematographer. And she, she's done, uh, I think, uh, Citizen Four is probably the the one that we've covered previously. So, but she's worked with subjects like you know Jacques Derrida and yeah, um, he has a lovely cameo in this. He does. Yeah. It's beautiful, and I love the little bit from Citizen Four in here. That's that's quite quite sweet as well. But yeah, no, you're right. This film is it's 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 very personal, but at the same time, I think it really raises these really powerful issues about subjectivity, objectivity, the idea of place. And witnessing, um, yep. I, I, and it does it in this very unspoken way. I think it's such a powerful film, not just because of Johnson's own remarkable career as the camera person of the title, but the editor Nels Bang Bangaretta, I think the name is. Um, the way that this film pulls this remarkable footage together is extraordinary. You're listening to Plato's Cave here on Three Triple R. Three Triple. Alex and Emma, tell us about Nocturama. I knew halfway through this film that it was on my films for the year. <laughs> yeah. It absolutely, I think it just absolutely blew me away. Um, I think this is such a powerful and intelligent film about terrorism 
um, and, and you know that that old chestnut, the personal is the political. Um, I think when we covered it on the show, the only film that I could think to compare it to was Chris Morris's Four Lions, mm. which tonally, That's aesthetically, right. this is a very, very different film. But the sense of scale um, and and the the human nature behind the people that that do this, and I just the. The, the end of this film ends up in a, in a shopping, you know, the, the, the characters kind of hide out in a luxury department store, which in a way feels really random, but I think it ends up being a really powerful critique of, um, of, of capitalism and the very culture that these terrorists are fighting against. I think it's an incredible movie. Mm, it also was a film that's doing big things but uh, plays at such a, a, a low, a quiet level. It could have been so hysterical but it wasn't in any way and I think it was actually quite a um, positive uh, depiction of, of the youth generation <laughs> despite the fact of what they were doing in this. Often I think that um, they're, they're not frivolous characters, they're very disparate, interesting characters and um, and they're grappling with very adult things and I think that came out beautifully in this film. Uh, Cerise, the next film is one that you and I chose, Tony Erdman. Oh, <laughs> what a wonderful, excruciating film <laughs> with two of the great performances of the year. For sure, um, yeah. Oh, look, uh, a father-daughter film, not so common. I know Josh was always big on the father-son films that Plato's Cave would cover over the years. He'd always <laughs> yeah. pounce on those with a certain glee. But this uh, is very much about a father and a daughter and a father who will assume uh, some quite ludicrous alter egos in order to try to get closer to his workaholic daughter who um, is busy in Romania. Actually, a lot of the action here takes place in Romania. So it manages to get in a little bit of a um, critique of how the, the West uh, exploits the, the um, what was the, well, still is the East, the, the, the old Soviet bloc, the nations that are still sort of the struggle town parts of Europe. But this is just such a glorious film and um, Whitney Houston has never been deployed to greater effect in a film. I was about to say, the Whitney Houston scene is astonishing. Um, I've had some of the biggest laughs I've had in a film this year with Tony Edmund and also bits of it that inexplicably just broke my heart. I, I think the, the, the very subtle portrayal of that, that, that very affectionate bond between father and daughter that's not always spoken is just so incredibly lovely. This was a, a really strong film that earned its very long running time. Uh, a film of a very different nature one is one that Alex and I were very much taken by, and that's the Egyptian film Clash. I had a feeling that you and I would bond over that. This, um, left, this film left me shaking. It's one of my big surprises of the year. And Likewise. It's a film that um, I think of all the films that I've spoken about tonight, if I could make people watch one, this would be it. Um, this director, Mohammed uh, Daib, I think his name is. Yep. Yeah, like he, he made a big blockbuster in 2007 called The Island, a kind of crime thriller film. He made a film that really brought him to my attention called Cairo 678, um, about sexual harassment um, in 2010. And I love that film so much. And I thought, that's it. You know, like you kind of can't get better than that. So I was sort of curious about Clash. And this is a film that was set just um, just after the big protests uh, in June 2013. The whole film is set inside the back of a police van and you've got members or supporters of the Muslim Brotherhood um, in a very small enclosed space with uh, supporters of the army and just with regular Joes all in the, the entire film is shot in the back of this police van. It's it's incredibly intense. How he makes he brings to it a kind of aesthetic beauty that in describing it like that almost sounds tacky. Um, but how he makes how he renders this film spectacular visually 
is just so canny and so powerful. The ending of this film, again, it was one of those transcendental moments. It's like, how do you do this with film? I mean, it's a powerful spectacle. It looks stunning. I love a single location film. And yet this doesn't feel like it's cheapening the political message behind this film. In fact, it helps emphasise it. I think this is a really essential film. It helped me understand the complexity of what's happening in these countries. Mm -hmm. Um, But just such a white-knuckled, visceral uh, experience. I think I've said visceral a lot tonight, but it tends to be something I like in cinema. (laughs) Uh, We've got two final films to discuss. As I mentioned earlier when we talked about I Am Not Your Negro, the the experience of African-Americans and the representation of black culture on screen has been really important this year, and these two films speak to that. And one is a film that Cerise and I has have selected, and that's Moonlight. Oh, um, it had to be, didn't it? Yeah. You sure it's not La La Land? <laughs> no. Uh, nice. That was last yeah, year. Yeah, technically uh, a 2016 film. <laughs> well, it's this year's awards ceremony, wasn't it? <laughs> no, no, don't. What a schmuzzle. But, but Moonlight we got this year. Yeah. <laughs> Look, oh, what a, a terribly moving film, um, which plays out on so many levels. Um, and uh, obviously there's a, a queer coming-of-age story there, but it's one of the most um, affecting ones I can think of, simply because the, the main character's journey across three actors, across three periods, it, it's it, he's not someone who came of age particularly promptly or rapidly. It's a very slow dawning of, um, of uh, self and... Um, Meantime, we, we grasp all of the, the ordeals this character has to go through and it's written on the bodies of, and the faces of these performers, all of them brilliant, all of them charismatic. And, um, and this film is just so, so exquisitely, beautifully shot. Uh, it's a film of, of superlatives to bandy around freely, I feel. It's a stunning film. Yeah, everything you've just said. I, I love the, the silence and the stillness in this film. For such a heavy film, it, it is there's something amazingly gentle about the film style. Is, I've never seen anything quite like it. There's one little moment of hand-holding that is just... Uh, enough to just have me weeping even thinking of it. Oh, yeah, tell me about it. And the final film, and I really wish I could have found a place myself for this in my top ten, but it's the one the three of you selected. It possibly really is the film of the year, and that's Get Out. I like that that brings Josh in as well. Josh and I wrote an article for Overland on this very film, our our past host Josh Nelson. So shout out, Josh, you're here with us (laughs) with our love for Get Out. So we can give it four votes. Yeah, You'll vote it out, Thomas. I love Get Out. I think it's Jordan Peele's a very clever man. I think he understands the parallels between comedy and and horror um, that better than a lot of people making either of those genres. I think they overlap more than people think. I think it's also an incredibly intelligent um, political movie. I think what it has to say is urgent and important and he says it in a really memorable, smart, fun way. Ditto. <laughs> what they said. <laughs> That is it. We have talked about our favourite films of 2017. The full <laughs> list will go up on the Plato's Cave page on the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. That will happen either later tonight or tomorrow morning, depending on how much we all go and drink now. <laughs> this has been our final proper show of 2017. So... So I can quickly thank a bunch of people who helped make Plato's Cave happen. That includes all the staff here at Triple R, especially programming and content manager Beck Hornsby, station manager Dave Houchin and talks producer Elizabeth McCarthy. We get extraordinary support from Triple R. Uh, it's a station that deeply values, um, or we deeply value how much they have invested in the show and in us. Uh, this is a station committed to letting presenters express themselves and ensuring that our show remains relevant to listeners and maintains high standards. 
disbanded. So we thank everybody from Triple R for their support and advice and encouragement. Thank you to Marion Blythe and Carl Chapman for stepping in to panel the show at various points throughout the year. Thank you to our wonderful guest presenters uh, from throughout the year, including Mike Bartlett, Alicia Sometimes, and especially original Plato's Cave presenters Tara Judah and Josh Nelson, who both managed to stop by a couple of weeks to do some shows with us while they were in the country. And again, thank you to Lisa Kovacevic for her work on the show last month, both on and off air. This year, we welcomed Faith Everard to the team to edit and publish the podcast version of the show. Faith has very much become a part of the team who sits in with us each week, helps with all the giveaways and does anything else we throw at her, uh, including jumping on air during our Radiothon show. We thank Faith enormously for all that she has done and will continue to do to ensure Plato's Cave continues to function relatively smoothly. And finally, a huge thank you to my talented, smart, insightful and sometimes very peculiar co-hosts, <laughs> Cerise Howard, Alexandra Helen Nicholas and Emma Westwood. And bravo to us for another year of film criticism. Now, this is the point where I'd usually say we'll all be back in 2018 to do it again. And indeed, Plato's Cave will be back in the new year. But Alex and I will no longer be part of the team. Cry, cry. Oh. Do you want to say anything, Alex? <laughs> I do. I want to say goodbye and I want to say thank you. I'm really sad to be going. But, you know, the, the big life garbage that gets in the way of the fun stuff has, has put its unwieldy fist in my face. And i got to leave the cave. But I'll be on the listening no. side. I'll be on the listening side. You've been a fantastic addition to the team, Alex. You've really defined what the show's all about. So six squids. I, I, I will miss six, yeah, six squids and packing bongs. I'm yeah, going to miss I'm talking <laughs> to you every week. I'm going to miss listening to you as well. I'm going to miss you guys. Yeah. Mm. And, yeah, look, likewise, uh, I've got increased work commitments, which means I'm going to have to step away for at least the majority of next year. I'm hoping I can reappear maybe later next year, depending on how things go. But I, I need to be a little bit sensible. I need to... To make sure I continue to spend time with my family as well. <laughs> so um, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step back. I've been doing this for seven years now. I, I started this show with Josh and Tara and I feel like I'm leaving on an enormous high. I think this is one of the best years we've ever had in terms of the people who are part of the show right now and all the guest people who came on throughout the show. Uh, Emma and Cerise, I can't wait to listen to hear what you do next year. <laughs> what will we do with the show? <laughs> you, can start by, you can start by finishing on time, um, which we have failed to do tonight. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.